listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Neural Farm for another edition of the podcast. I'm Colby Burns, Doctor of Pharmacy. I'm joined by Chris Tony, Doctor of Pharmacy. There are over four million podcasts in the U.S., but we are certainly glad you are choosing to listen to this one. I hope everybody had a good Father's Day and Juneteenth. Um, fun fact is, according to the History Channel, the first Father's Day was celebrated on June 19th, 1910, in the state of Washington, or my home state, right now. But it was not recognized nationwide until 1972, 58 years after Mother's Day was recognized. Today, Father's Day is celebrated in about 50 countries. Most of them celebrate in June, but Argentina celebrates in August, Australia celebrates in September, Thailand in December, and several other countries celebrate in March or May. So it's not all in the month of June, Um, but thank you to all you fathers out there. June 19th was yesterday, and that was Juneteenth. It's recognized as the day slavery ended, although more accurately, it's the day the 13th Amendment was signed that officially ended slavery in the entire United States. The Emancipation Proclamation applied to freeing slaves held in rebellious states, so specifically areas that were under Union Army control. So, of course, the Confederacy was not going to allow any slaves to be freed from their front lines, but many slaves did run away on farms where their masters were off on the front lines serving in the army. Since the Western states and the Confederacy were among the last to be liberated, it was not until June 19, 1865, when Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, announced the liberation of all slaves in that state, where the celebration of Juneteenth was first celebrated. It's now become a national holiday. Uh, I'm kind of curious as to why the signing of the 13th Amendment, which actually officially banned the practice of slavery in the Constitution, is not celebrated instead as a national holiday, but uh, still great to have a day off to reflect how far we have come as a nation and moving towards society where racial equity is closer than it once was, even if we have a long ways to go. Uh, on a non-holiday-related topic, uh, do you see this, Chris? That Felix Lengiel, better known as Gamertag Q or XQC, just signed a contract with the streaming platform Kick for a hundred million dollars. Uh, what do you think of this, Chris? <laughs> well, I I think I went into the wrong field. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that would be nice to get paid to play games. <laughs> Chris and I actually have been friends for a long time. Uh, I think our parents let us play games growing up, but I don't believe that they ever emphasize it as a pathway to financial success to play video games. But I guess for some people it is. Uh, that's more money he's making than LeBron James makes in a given year. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Um, <laughs> so anyways, let's let's, yeah, let's I was move gonna, on. I was going to um, talk about a little bit about the a review of the history on LSD so we can kind of uh, pick up where we left off last time. Um, so, you know, as a reminder uh, with LSD, clinical research uh, basically came to a halt in the early 1970s because of political pressure following its widespread uncontrolled use. 
And uh, the recreational use of LSD, however, has uh, remained high. And in 2010, an estimated 32 million U.S. residents reported lifetime use of LSD. In the 1990s, uh, clinical hallucinogen research very slowly began with experimental studies of psilocybin and dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT. The first modern research findings from studies of LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca, uh, which contains DMT, in psychiatric patients have only very recently been published. Legally authorized LSD-assisted psychotherapy is currently offered to very few patients in Switzerland in the context of compassionate use and based on case-by-case -case authorizations by the Federal Health Office. In addition, experimental research on LSD in healthy subjects has gained new momentum and resulted in novel findings. So a little bit about early trials and later trials. Uh, the early clinical trials used mostly LSD, while most of the recent hallucinogen studies use psilocybin because of its ease of use due to the shorter action and less controversial history. However, modern studies need to directly investigate whether the effects of LSD in humans differ qualitatively from those of psilocybin and DMT in consideration of LSD's longer duration of action. So um, I'll also talk about, you know, the studies in healthy subjects and then studies in uh, patients. So there were five novel experimental placebo-controlled studies that have been conducted in Basel, London, and Zurich in a total of 95 normal subjects. All studies used a crossover design and were placebo-controlled. The Basel and Zurich studies were randomized and double-blind, whereas the London studies were non-randomized and single-blind. Low to moderate doses of LSD base of 40 to 80 micrograms intravenously, which was done in London, or 100 micrograms orally, which was done in Basel and Zurich, were used in studies including brain imaging and a relatively high dose of 200 micrograms of LSD base uh, was used in one study in Basel without brain imaging. A full LSD reaction is expected at doses of 100 to 200 micrograms. Similar and higher doses of LSD were used in patients in the 1950s to 1970s. So early studies from the 1950s to the 1970s indicated that LSD may have antidepressive and anxiolytic properties. LSD-assisted psychotherapy was often performed in patients with anxiety and cancer and in patients with depression or related disorders. These early practices and studies were relatively poorly documented methodologically and replication in modern studies is needed. Single or few doses of LSD also reportedly lessened cluster headaches and induced remission more effectively than conventional medications. However, no controlled studies have been conducted. LSD was also well studied as a treatment for alcohol use disorder. LSD and other hallucinogens are misused but are not addictive substances leading to compulsive drug taking, withdrawal, or self-administration in animals. Recent trials investigated psilocybin in patients with alcohol and nicotine use disorder, major depression, and anxiety. However, in the past 40 years, 
No studies of LSD have been conducted in humans until very recently, and only one modern trial evaluated LSD in patients. The trial assessed the effects of LSD-assisted psychotherapy on anxiety in 11 patients with life-threatening diseases, eight of whom had cancer. Um, eight patients received 200 micrograms of LSD twice, and three patients received active placebo, which was a dose of 20 micrograms of LSD in two sessions that were two to three weeks apart, with an open-label crossover of 200 micrograms LSD after the first randomized double-blind treatment phase. At study entry, all of the patients presented higher ratings of anxiety on the state trait anxiety inventory scale, or STAI. Um, six were diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, and seven were diagnosed with major depression. The study found a significant decrease in STAI anxiety two months after the two LSD sessions compared with baseline anxiety scores. The STAI scores did not decrease in the placebo group. However, the placebo control group was too small for statistical comparisons with the treatment group and therefore a valid control was missing. The study also found a non-significant decrease in depression and increases in quality of life. A follow-up study at 12 months in nine patients reported sustained decreases in anxiety, an increase in quality of life, and no lasting adverse reactions after LSD, but the follow-up lacked a control group. So Colby, what can you tell us about drug interactions with LSD? Yeah, thanks. A good question. We'll move on to talk about drug interactions. I uh, realized last week we didn't talk about this particular topic. Um, it's hard to find a lot of info really out there on this topic. There's a lot more information on drug interactions with MDMA and psilocybin than with LSD. It probably makes sense that these agents are right now being a bit more researched. And, you know, Chris has talked about there isn't a lot of modern trials on LSD besides that one by Gasser, which was pretty interesting from 2014. But there was a retrospective study I found in published in 1996 in the Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology that recruited users using LSD who were on antidepressants with SSRIs primarily. And this study was kind of interesting because it asked users to compare their experience with using LSD while on antidepressants with their experience in the past using LSD while not on antidepressants, or comparing their experience to that of a friend taking a similar dose of LSD who was not on an antidepressant. That's kind of how the study separated the control group from the comparator group. I would equate this as a real-world study, perhaps one that is not as scientifically rigorous as is entirely based on self-reporting and subjective information. You know, sometimes in medicine we call this anecdotal data and we kind of discard it um, because subjects are just gathering their own data and providing their own insights based on experience uh, that they've had in the past. There's not really great comparator group. But I thought it was interesting and, again, kind of a real world. Uh, as Chris is saying, the kind of stuff you see on Reddit all the time, people talking about drug interactions with this or that, um, with these illicit substances, just because there's not much actually available to find. 
One subject, a 34-year-old male and a self-described experienced LSD user reported that he took 250 microgram of LSD while taking 20 milligram of fluoxetine or Prozac for six weeks. He noted that he felt it was equivalent to 75 microgram of LSD for him, and the effects of LSD lasted only five hours instead of 10 hours like they usually do. His friend consumed 100 microgram for the same batch who was not on uh, antidepressants, and he claimed to have a normal experience on LSD. There was also a 36-year-old male who reported using sertraline or Zoloft for three weeks. Then he consumed 200 microgram of LSD and experienced no hallucinatory effects at all. He then took a 300 microgram dose from the same batch a couple weeks later and stated that he felt it was similar to taking a 100 microgram dose, so he didn't feel he got the same effect from the LSD he usually does. Another patient taking 20 milligrams of Paxil or paroxetine for three weeks took 150 micrograms of LSD and experienced only a mild sensation that lasted for about 30 minutes. His friend, who was not on antidepressants, tried an equivalent dose of LSD from the same batch and had a normal psychedelic response. The patient uh, that was on LSD and Paxil again tried 150 microgram from the same batch a few weeks later and said he had no hallucinatory response at all to LSD. And looking at the overall data, 28 out of 32 patients, or 88% in the study, reported there was a moderate to significant decrease in their usual response to LSD while taking an SSRI, either Zoloft or sertraline, uh, Prozac or fluoxetine or paroxetine or Paxil. And all those patients were on those drugs for at least three weeks before trying LSD. Most of the patients in the study were on fluoxetine, but it seemed like the interaction with LSD and SSRIs didn't change based on the particular SSRI chosen, uh, nor did it change uh, based on the dose of SSRI used, although patients reported taking higher doses of LSD did report that they still experienced some hallucinogenic response just to a level that they would equate as much more comparable to a much lower dose of LSD. None of this was explained by LSD tolerance, as the patients only used LSD about once a week in the study. Uh, it does seem that there could be tolerance developed to LSD after three to four days of consecutive use, but it's not expected to persist for more than a week if not LSD is not continuously being used. Um, and But again, LSD tolerance, there's not very good research on that either, much like drug interactions and other things with LSD. There is an explanation for how SSRIs or antidepressants can interfere with LSD. They might decrease expression over time of the serotonin 5-HT2 and 5-HT1A receptors. Those are both binding sites for LSD, so it could explain the interaction of LSD not able to bind to that those receptors as much affinity and causing sort of a decreased response to LSD. There are some drugs, maybe like lithium, that actually seem to increase LSD activity. But the other class of drug that is really associated with interacting with LSD, according to literature, are benzodiazepines like diazepam or Valium. These agents are used to actually reverse the symptoms of panic or anxiety associated with a bad LSD trip in the emergency room. Uh, Chris will talk about that. I did one, one, point, one more thing we didn't mention last week. LSD is... Not strictly contraindicated pregnancy, but it's recommended to be avoided. Yeah, so I'd just like to add 
A well-known class of trip killers are the antipsychotics. Um, the antipsychotics block serotonin and dopamine receptors that the LSD would normally bind to. And so if you're planning on having experience with LSD or another classic um, hallucinogen, then you should be careful, um, you know, taking LSD with an anti. There are reports of some LSD enthusiasts um, who will often trip while having access to a benzodiazepine or an antipsychotic in the event that they need to end their trip for psychological issues. One thing I want to mention is that patients that already have mental health issues, they need to avoid or be extremely cautious with psychedelics such as LSD. Uh, recall that Delicid was sent to psychiatric facilities all around the world to study the schizophrenic inducing potential of LSD. Hey Colby, what can you tell me about microdosing? <laughs> uh, microdosing is definitely a uh, big interest in LSD. It definitely is with psilocybin also right now. Um, so that will be another topic when we could talk about psilocybin, but there's also interest in LSD microdosing. I will say the problem with microdosing studies in general is that the reason that people microdose or the benefits that people obtain from microdosing aren't always clearly defined. If you go to any online forum and ask why people microdose, you are likely to get hundreds of different answers. So any trial evaluating microdosing has to have broad objectives and potentially would be subject to reporting bias, as well as an expectant effect, meaning if people think they are getting a psychedelic, they may be more likely to experience sort of a placebo or nocebo effect <coughs> from the psychedelic so the response might be a little more amplified than it should be because that expects an effect. This is something studies try to correct for through advanced statistical measurements. Uh, I honestly is a little beyond my capacity to explain how they do that. I was confused reading one study about how they were accounting for that expectant effect, but they try to take that into effect when they look at the data to reduce some of the amplitude, I guess, of the effects as they take into account what you'd expect to see from the expectant effect. So the MD-LSD study was recently completed evaluating repeated microdosing of LSD in healthy male volunteers in New Zealand. 80 male volunteers were enrolled and evenly divided between either taking LSD at a dose of 10 microgram per day or placebo every three days for six weeks. Sorry, the, the LSD was given at 10 microgram per day, dosed every three days. I didn't explain that very well, but it was not dosed daily. The subject only enrolled males in order to reduce any confounding variables associated with female menstrual cycles. Um, I don't know why. Again, we can't account for that, but this is a male-only study, just the way it was designed. The three-day regimen of 10 microgram per session was based on psychedelic author and researcher James Fadiman's book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which came out in 2011. 10 micrograms was proposed as 10% of the full psychedelic trip. Uh, but remember, of course, that Delicid was branded in 25 microgram tablets initially in the 70s. So you determine now a psychedelic trip is a lot more than 25 micrograms. In this particular study, participants were asked to complete a series of 18 visual analog scales or VAS readings every day, starting with one at baseline before any treatment was administered. 
Volunteers received the first dose of LSD in clinic and objective measures of drug efficacy are measured, including volunteers receiving an EEG and a creativity test at baseline. I don't know exactly what a creativity test was, but that's what said they were given. They also received a functional MRI at baseline, and these objective tests repeated at the study endpoint. And all the subsequent doses after the first dose were self-administered with patients sending a video of themselves, taking the dose, and sending it to the study team on the assigned day of treatment. So that's how they determine adherence since patients were taking the doses at home. The study looked at both safety and efficacy variables, and from a safety standpoint, there were four patients who withdrew from the LSD group due to anxiety, with 35% of patients in the LSD group experiencing anxiety versus 7% of the placebo group. No other adverse event was noted to be statistically different between the two groups. And anxiety was noted to be resolved within two weeks for all participants who experienced it, so thankfully it's not a long-term side effect. The dose had to be titrated up more slowly in seven patients in the LSD group due to overstimulation. Those in the LSD group were also more likely to report beneficial effects of happiness, wellness, creativity, and connectedness relative to the placebo group, and also reported having more energy. However, they scored negatively in expressing more anger and irritability relative to placebo. It really seemed that irritability scores were greater on the non-dosing days, which could be a sign of a rebound effect occurring or you know, some sort of withdrawal effect occurring on those days, maybe. There was no objective measure of changes in mood, cognition, or personality at the end of the study. Um, interestingly, all the patients experienced anxiety on day one more when taking LSD in the clinic compared to taking it at home. So perhaps the clinic setting was actually making them feel anxious versus being at home. Um, one thing with the study, the fact that all volunteers were males and mostly whites may make it not as generalizable to a larger population. Another microdosing study with a little bit different methods was published recently in the Journal of Addiction Biology. In this study, patients are randomly assigned to receive either placebo, 13 micrograms of LSD, or 26 micrograms of LSD at three to four day intervals. Patients attended four sessions with administration occurring in clinic at five-hour monitored sessions. Patients completed cognitive and behavioral tasks relative to emotional processing, working memory, stimulated social rejection, and general cognitive performance. Neither dose of LSD had significant effect on emotional processing, mood, working memory, or general cognitive performance. Although at the 26-microgram dose, participants in the LSD group reported having more energy. Study author Harriet DeWitt stated the following, quote, We can't say necessarily that microdosing doesn't work. All we can say is that under these controlled circumstances with this kind of participant, these doses and these intervals, we didn't see a robust effect, unquote. Another study conducted by DeWitt in a similar setting found that 13 microgram LSD increased reward positivity in participants, which is an effect associated with antidepressants. Seems a little contradictory to the first study. Yeah. So, Colby, it's, it kind of sounds like microdosing might be playing a placebo effect on people. What do you think about that? It's kind of interesting because if it is a placebo, is that really a bad thing? I mean, we're not necessarily treating cancer or infectious disease. People are just trying to feel better about their lives. And if this helps them feel better, um, I wonder why it's kind of being looked down on. Also, there's an important point that there's a lot of placebo effect associated with SSRIs, which we talked about being among the most frequently prescribed drugs in the U.S. A large meta-analysis published in 
the journal BMJ Open supposedly definitively proved the SSRIs are superior to placebos for depression, but that was criticized for its methodology with one researcher saying it didn't account for publication bias. Dr. Klaus Munkholm wrote in The Lancet, taken together, or sorry, quote, taken together, the evidence does not support definitive conclusions regarding the efficacy of antidepressants for depression in adults, including whether they are more efficacious than placebo for depression, unquote. So we don't even know whether actual antidepressants are superior to placebo or not. Yet when it comes to LSD or psilocybin, we kind of use the placebo effect. We throw it out there very negatively when it comes to microdosing. So that's kind of my thoughts on that, that, you know, maybe we don't have the definitive evidence that it works, but also it seems like the media publishes a lot of negative pieces about microdosing being a placebo effect. And I'm not quite sure why it should be looked at negatively. If it's people think it helps, then why is that a bad thing? Yeah, I agree. I see your point there. Um, so I, let me see. I wanted to talk about uh, flashbacks. Not super common, but it's it's pretty common um, when, when people are taking LSD for long periods of time or extremely high doses. So LSD has typically been reported to produce flashbacks. The flashbacks after LSD can be defined as episodic or short-term replications of elements of their previous substance-related experiences. In a web-based survey among hallucinogen users, greater past LSD use was a predictor of the probability of experiencing unusual substance-free visual experiences. Um, clinically significant flashbacks are also defined as hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, or HPPD. This disorder is considered rare and occurs almost exclusively in the context of illicit recreational use and or in patients with anxiety disorders. And typically it will have a limited course of months uh, to a year. In controlled non-therapeutic research settings, psilocybin did not produce HPPD or flashbacks. However, the prevalence and relevance of HPPD is unclear and needs to be studied. So where do we go from here? A few single administrations of LSD or related substances within a therapeutic setting may be beneficial for patients with anxiety associated with severe illness, depression, or addiction. These old and new treatments may have potential in psychiatry. As professionals, we should actively study these new options so patients who are in need will not look elsewhere for unproven treatments from unregulated sources. More methodologically sound research on psychological and biological mechanisms and therapeutic potential of LSD in psychiatry is needed. Yeah, there's still, you know, a lot of unanswered questions with LSD and, and more research and hopefully some of the regulatory barriers can be broken down that allow LSD to be researched more. But definitely it's coming back a little bit uh, from where it was in the 1960s and 70s. Not quite as much as psilocybin, which is all of the news, or magic mushrooms for those who aren't familiar with the term psilocybin. But that will be, I think, a good topic for next time. Start talking about psilocybin. Definitely a lot of research with that. Um, as always, thank you for listening. Share 
this podcast with a friend. Post a question below if you have any questions for us, and check out the references section and subscribe for the latest updates. This podcast is presented for educational and informational purposes only. As licensed pharmacists, we do not advocate for the self-administration of products designed to be given only under medical supervision, nor do we recommend for or against the use of products listed as Schedule 1 under Drug Enforcement Administration guidance, nor do we recommend using prescription-only products that have not been prescribed to you by a licensed prescriber. We assume no responsibility for any legal repercussions that may occur to the individual after the use of federally illicit substances.